It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. Uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And we have our A-plus panel this week. We have Beth Young, who is the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Hey, Joe. Hey, Bill. Steve Wick, uh, the executive editor of the Times Review Media Group up in uh, the North Fork and Riverhead. How you doing, Steve? Good morning, everyone. And Vera Chinise, who covers the East End for Newsday. Good morning, Vera. Good morning, Joe. So we have a whole mess of topics to cover. It's been a busy week, uh, nice midsummer kind of busy week uh, for all of us. Uh, biggest news, I think, coming coming down the pike, at least down our way this week, was finally. Uh, the closing on a piece of property in Shinnecock Hills uh, that's known as Sugarloaf. And it's Sugarloaf Hill, which has a real significance uh, for the Shinnecock Nation, Steve. And this this was a a very big deal. And this is something that's been uh, decades uh, really in the making and, and finally became a reality. Uh, it was preserved this week. And it's, it's really an interesting uh, development, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's almost miraculous. I mean, I, you wouldn't think in 2021, with everything hap- that's happened on the South Fork in the last decade, let's say, in terms of land prices and development, that this kind of thing could have happened. I think it's a remarkable partnership between the nation and the Peconic Land Trust. But to me, it speaks in a very large way about Native history here that's been either completely buried, uh, long ignored by so-called town historians, And this is the nation asserting itself, demanding to be heard, demanding that their history be respected. And it's a a huge achievement, particularly on the South Fork, where everything is just so crazy in terms of prices. And it it speaks to all five East End towns. I mean, of course, it speaks to Long Island in particular, but our little research group that we have going for slave and native history on the North Fork, we've asked ourselves a hundred times, where are these burial grounds? Where are they? Did did the English just build over them or plow them under? Where are they? Can we find them? Is there a way for the descendants of native people to know where these things are and to put plaques up on them? We discovered years ago uh, that there was a reservation in Peconic. It was created in 1680s. And then they when they wanted the land, they just erased it in the 1690s. And then you had a group of natives in the 1780s trying to get it back and no one would tell them where it was. So what you saw happen last week, Joe, to me is just epic, absolutely epic. And let's explain, Bill, it's it's actually a, a piece of property. Uh, Sugarloaf Hill was for generations uh, a, a very uh, sacred burial site for for the nation that's it faces east which was really important for their culture um yeah on a hill Uh, i think it's at the highest point uh in that in that area of shinnecock hills and this is actually a property that was developed with a house was built on this property and um in it was years ago that it happened but the town did allow that property to be built now it's been preserved the community preservation fund provided um, most of the money to buy it. Uh, rock star Roger Waters actually kicked in another three hundred thousand to make it happen. But they're going to actually tear that house down, right, Bill? And it, I, it's going yeah, to be there's a seven hundred seven thousand square foot house on the property that has to come down, and and that's 
necessarily necessary not only <clears throat> for for the history of the property, but in order to use you know community preservation funds, um, you know for for the purchase, then it has to be undeveloped or you know so it's going to be restored. Um, yeah, this this property was traditionally part of of the original um, Shinnecock territory when they got moved to their to their current territory. Um, years and years ago, then, then this property was lost to, to development and it's just developed all, all through there. Um, you know, and I, I think it's, it's a great partnership, um, you know, with, with Peconic Land Trust, but let's, let's not, um, let's not ignore the, the town's effort in this as well, Southampton town. I, I remember writing about Shinnecock efforts to preserve, um, you know, uh, Grave, grave sites and burial grounds uh, 20 years ago as, as a reporter. And there was always, it seemed like lip service on, on the town's part to, to get these kind of things going. But I think the current town board and supervisor Jay Schneiderman, um, you know, over the last few years have really pushed forward um, local legislation to, to make this stuff possible. They put a moratorium on, on construction and, and efforts to, um, to preserve these, these burial sites. Um, which, which is, is, you know, I, I think long, long overdue, but let's give them credit for uh, for getting it done now, finally. And I think you're right. I think they talked about there may be other properties in the same area that they want to uh, that they want to look at. They also want to see if they can um, move some burial sites from, um, you know, from other graveyards and, and Shinnecock remains that might be in other places. Um, onto this burial site. So I'm really excited to see what they're going to do with this property. That's a really good thing. It is just the summit of the hill, correct? So the, yeah. the property it's a few it, it's a few acres, but it's but it's so it's so specifically um, on a part of the the Sugarloaf uh, area that I think was was most important to to the tribe for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And, um, it's, and, and Vera, I wanted to, you know, I think Steve hit on it. This is really a landmark moment, isn't it? I mean, I'd say this is, Absolutely. this is the moment the narrative starts to change where the town did work with the nation for the, for, you know, after years and years of there being bitter disputes, they really did work together on this project. And it's a moment of where you may, might be able to build on it. Yeah, absolutely. This marks a shift, a major shift in relation between the town and the tribe. Uh, you know, I mean, five million dollars. That's a that's a lot of money. Um, and, you know, and I'm trying to think, you know, what what actually what has happened in the past few years to kind of uh, start this shift? And I think a lot of it has to do with the conscience point documentary coming out. I really feel like that kind of moved the conversation. Um, I mean, I feel like the billboards may have. Um, you know, th that might have been the start of the, the tribe asserting their sovereignty, asserting their power. Um, so we have a number of factors going on here, but um, you're really seeing a lot of good things happening for the tribe right now. And I think that's I think that's great. What do you think, Beth? Do you think that I think the documentary, I think Vera is absolutely right. The uh, conscience point, uh, really, the, the documentary called a lot of attention to this fight in particular. And um, I, I actually traded emails with Becky Genia uh, with the nation, who's been sort of one of the leaders for Graves Protection. Um, this has been just a personal battle for her for just to, you know, 20 years. It's It's been 20 yeah. years and it's the first real small victory, Beth, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I feel last year, last year was a real global reckoning for the rights of of oppressed people, and I think you know people were looking around saying, "What do we do?" And this is it's a no brainer to to help the Shinnecocks uh, get back what was theirs. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, a part of a, a national movement as well. I mean, there are movements out west to return a lot of uh, federally owned land, like the Black Hills, for example, back to the the people that. They were originally written, uh, there were original um, deeds and treaties in which that was their land. And then, of course, it was taken away when gold or something was found. And it's important to put the Shinnecock Hills in perspective. In the 1880s, that was all their land. Uh, that was entirely theirs. When the railroad wanted to cut through to get the Montauk so that a summer resort could be built, um, that land was taken from them. And then, as Bill noted, the reservation switched to something below that mine. Uh, so this this was theirs. And the land back movement is gaining momentum and it will gain more momentum here. I think you'll see similar efforts at Montauk Point, which yeah. there are absolute burial grounds on Montauk Point. Yeah. And I think you'll see on the on the North Fork, the same thing begins to happen. It'll be slow, but we have a change in Washington. We have a new secretary of the interior. And there's a, mo a movement now just called the land back movement that this is a, a really, really important part of. I'm curious on the on the North Fork. I mean, it, it seems that m many of the, the people who, uh, the indigenous people who would be pushing for the North Fork are from the Shinnecock Nation who have so many things they need to preserve that are closer to home. There really aren't a lot of uh, descendants of the North Fork Native Americans. Well, I, I think if John Strong, the, the former Southampton College professor was on, he would say that those the so-called remnant tribes, when when the English just began to just shove people off their land on the North Fork, they went to places like Shinnecock, they went to Montauk. Right. We recently had a story about a gravesite in Kutchog of a David Hannibal, who was a native man, died in the 1930s, and Hannibal is a Montaukit name. So those East End tribes, those East End groups were all family groups. They weren't specific tribes. Uh, they were all more so, more like kinship groups, but I, I think the Shinnecocks will be able to speak. This is what's so important. We'll be able to speak for those groups that no longer are living on that land. Yeah. And Vera, Vera, I wanted to make the point. This was a purchase. It was a significant purchase, um, but it won't be the last one. This is this is a plan. This is the first step. Of the Conic Land Trust. And, and the nation are working together. And, and the idea is, and now the town is willing to use com community preservation funds. The plan is to, to buy more properties in Shinnecock Hills, to pay market value for them, and then to restore them to, to their natural state, right? Yeah, so it's really interesting is that, you know, the community preservation fund had saw record revenue last year. So in a way, this uh, East End real estate boom can be used to, um, you know, to fix a historical wrong. And that's kind of remarkable. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. North yeah. Fork doesn't have quite that, the revenue to, to do that, unfortunately. Yeah. Really that, focused that's... just on farmland preservation. So that's really a conversation that should be happening up here, but preserving the farms has taken precedent over it. It's a significant development. There's no question. And I think something to watch moving forward will be whether we see uh, federal money uh, come into play 
uh, for some of these efforts as well. But now that they have the groundwork laid uh, with the purchase of Sugarloaf, I think um, it'll be interesting to see what the tribe does moving forward. So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw, uh, the Express News Group. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of the Express News Group. And today we have Beth Young from the East End Beacon, Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group, and Vera Chinise from Newsday. Um, I want to give a, a moment here to, to mark um, this past Saturday, uh, last Saturday, was the uh, 25th anniversary of the crash of Flight 800. And um, it was such a, an, an incredible moment for the East End. It was, it was a tragedy that really touched this region in, in a lot of ways. There were, there were a lot of local people directly affected. Uh, a lot of the, the search and rescue and recovery efforts involved local people who, were, who had to deal with, with the aftermath of that. And I think it has to be said, what a remarkable effort after the crash. They recovered 92% of the plane crash and all of the 230 victims um, from an area, I believe it was 18 miles offshore and in a, a mile deep water. Um, it's a remarkable achievement that happened after the crash. But Steve Wick, you were part of the team that, that covered the crash for Newsday back then. And you were part of the team that actually won a Pulitzer Prize for your coverage of it. Can you kind of tell us what it was like um, to be out there in the field uh, when that, when, when that, and then in the direct aftermath of that crash. Yeah. That, that night, um, I was thinking last Saturday at exactly eight thirty one PM last Saturday night, I was sitting down at the end of my street, which sits right on the Peconic Bay. And I was thinking at this very moment, 25 years ago, 230 people died. Um, I was on my way home that night. I, I remember vividly going over William Floyd Parkway, going East towards Kutchog at eight 30. And not at that point, not understanding what that moment meant until I got home. And um, the hero of the night is a guy is a reporter named Bill Blyer, a former now a former reporter. And Bill knew enough fishermen in Hampton Bays that he got a boat lined up. And a photographer, John Williams, and I went out. We got out there probably sometime about 1030 or so. And it was just this massive sea of debris. Um, just big parts of the jet floating all over the place, luggage everywhere. Um, I wrote in the column last week, there was an empty baby bottle that was flo floated by the boat. Um, the sea was incredibly flat, but the air was just filled with this burning jet fuel. It was absolutely sickening. But what really was overwhelming, Joe, was just the, the, the realization that everyone had died the sadness of it that everyone had died. Lots of fishing boats showed up looking to help. Um, we saw some pulling bodies out of the water. We didn't see any because it was so dark and other people were just pulling bits of you know, wreckage out. And as you point out, amazingly, they, they put it all together. And of course, there's nothing, once they put it together, there's no evidence of a missile hitting it, which was one of the, the conspiracy theories that uh, even the comments on last Saturday's story that we did, the column that we did, people, you know, blasting us for not believing. It's a, it, it's a zombie, zombie claim. It just won't go away. But they it won't go you away. Know, part of what was amazing about being able to recover 92 percent of the plane and putting it back together in a hangar in, uh, in a warehouse in, in Calverton was that they were very um, comfortably able to identify exactly what went wrong and then 
there was there were measures taken to fix that on all of the aircraft that are flying today. So, you know, to be able to pinpoint the cause and, and then to be able to take action to make sure it doesn't happen again, I think is is testimony to this effort in the yeah. aftermath. Steve, you know, when you come upon a scene of that kind of destruction, um, just devastation, I would imagine that's got to be a traumatic thing for all of the fishermen that you talked about, all of the rescue personnel, uh, you know, you, even the rescue personnel you'd think would be prepared for something like that, but nobody can be prepared for a, for a scene like that. I would think. Yeah. I mean, I, I we saw in a distance, uh, some, some of the fishing boats were pulling up, you know, bodies. Um, again, we didn't see any, um, I think the boat captain we had, um, said that he saw a bunch. We didn't, um, John Williams, the photographer, who's like one of the most gifted people I think I've ever known. Um, he was just so sick from the fumes that I kind of had to hold him up by the back of his belt from pitching over every time he held his camera up and just kind of lost his balance. Um, and then we, we stayed out until the sun came up and then you could just see even more of it. Um, just, I mean, and then the tide was just taking, the current was just taking all this debris all over the place. Um, it was clear that the jet exploded. There was no question that it exploded. And then, and then the theory that, you know, someone shot it down or it exploded. The terrorism theory was pushed very immediately by, by the FBI. And of course, what else could you think? And the plane blew up. So you would think a bomb on board and then stories come out an entire French class from Montoursville, Pennsylvania on their way to Paris on a school trip, all of them gone. And you could just see their parents and their family members saying goodbye to them at, you know, at the exit, at the gates. Hey, have a great time. We'll see you later to send us some pictures. And it all ended exactly 12 minutes after that jet took off from Kennedy Airport. It's an incredible tragedy. Just devastating. Um, Beth, you were you were a resident. I, we, we talked a little bit last week. I, Bill and I um, both came uh, a little bit after the crash, it was still on, you know, fresh in everybody's mind, even a year or two later. Vera, I think we hired you uh, to move out this way, right? But that was a few years no, after. No, I'm well. from here. I'm, oh, you are. Okay. I thought, I, thought we, I thought we relocated you out here. Yeah. So you you and Beth were both out here. And, and yeah. I mean, it, you can't really overstate this the significance of this and how it affected the region, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, guys, was, I was 12 years old and I was in my bedroom watching the news that night, like glued to the TV, you know, as a 12 year old. So, mm. you know, I had every, a, it's something I had a that affects everybody. House. <laughs> you say that again? I had a newborn in the house. <laughs> no kidding. But it was it was just it was, an enormous story. And, and it's like I said, um, I, I arrived a, a year or two after that, and it was still all anybody could talk about because yeah. um, there were there were a lot of local connections to that flight yeah. and and a lot of people felt the, the, the impact of it. I think we reported, we didn't, but Newsday did, and I'd love to get them on. There was an Air National Guard helicopter up that night on some kind of a training mission and actually saw the explosion, actually saw the, mm -hmm. the burst of flame. Um, you can imagine what that was like for them, like, oh my God, what was that? And then there were other pilots of incoming jets passenger jets saying, calling into air traffic control saying, we just saw a big bl blast of flame. What, what is that? So there was a wide universe, Joe, to get back to your point that were directly involved and then impacted. 
and go through the passenger list. You can see names from here. You can see names from all over. Uh, some names are well known. Um, to this day, I don't know who, who was the owner of that baby bottle. Baby bottle. There's no, on the passenger list, I don't see a baby, but there's a dozen names without any ages next to them. Mm -hmm. And it was an empty baby bottle, which if you've ever had a baby on a plane and you're trying to free the ears up from the pressure, you give them a bottle. And I remember yelling at John Williams, look, a baby bottle. And, but to this day, I don't know who that went with. Mm. The mystery. You know, the, the show is behind the headlines and, and it, it strikes me that uh, the local media uh, did just such a masterful job in telling those stories. I mean, you guys were awarded with a Pulitzer Prize for, for the, the way you told that story, but it's, it's part of the, the process of, uh, of trying to process something so huge, you know, for, for readers is being able to tell those stories and, and to, to um, share those images that you saw. So the, the impact though on, on journalists too, um, covering it, I think would be fairly significant. Um, Steve, I imagine that was uh, something that would be difficult to shake uh, for, for years after. It, it just, it just reminds us that our job is to tell stories and um, we're in the story business and we're in the people business. And if you don't have empathy for people, Joe, you're going to be a reporter your whole life. Excuse my language. It's not, <laughs> you're not going to be a good reporter if you cannot understand the plight of people and what they're going through. And yes, we're observers, but we're meant to be the best observers uh, of a situation and to write about people whose, whose lives have just been instantly shattered. It's something I've told reporters in the past that when, when tragedies happen, big and small, people do want to talk about it. They want to tell those it's stories. True. It's important to tell those stories that, that it can seem intrusive at the time when you're asking uh, questions of people who, who have been through trauma, but yeah. it, it's sometimes very cathartic for the people involved too. And, and just telling those stories and keeping memories alive is, is a big part of what we do. So, yeah, um, I, I would love to, to know that the, the owner of the baby bottle, but the people that keep calling up and demanding to know that a Navy submarine shot it down accidentally, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not remembering the dead properly. They're, they're spinning it into some absurd story and that's not how you remember people. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's sort of the way uh, big stories are processed, I think, by the nation anymore is they, they look for um, explanations in the strangest ways. We have an explanation for this crash. It's yes. terribly unfortunate. And we were able to, you know, the, the industry was able to fix a problem as a result of it. So I think that's the big takeaway from that. But uh, 25 years later, I think we're still talking about it. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Bill Sutton from the Express News Group is my co-host. Uh, we have Beth Young from the East End Beacon, Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group, and Vera Chinise from Newsday. So uh, let's move on to talk about something a little more uh, broadly impactful, which is traffic. Uh, Bill, we had uh, a story this week that Jay Schneiderman, the Southampton Town Supervisor, uh, is going to put together a task force to try and look at some solutions. And one of them uh, they're hoping to put into play sometime in the coming weeks to try and address the just crushing amount of traffic that's that's out here this summer. Yeah, he's going to um, <clears throat> he's hoping on a trial basis to put a bunch of different intersections on blinking lights rather than uh, red and green lights. 
um, which which I think saw some success back when you know when we had one of the one of the golf tournaments to try to get traffic flowing and easier. Um, I, I'm curious to see how that would work out because I think when you do that, you have issues then with you know with people coming in from the feeder roads and feeder streets trying to make a right or left turn that that then can't get in. Um, you know, as you have the traffic flowing, I think, um, you know, maybe a better solution is traffic circles, but, but we'll see. So there's a couple spots up in Flanders, a couple along County Road 39, um, one in, in Hampton Bays at, at uh, Canoe Place Road, which is, which is actually one of my shortcuts. I come down the north and I do that, that I uh, had uh, west on Montauk Highway and then do the U-turn to go east again. And if that light is blinking i don't know what happens it's already there's already a backup there and i guess the plan is to try to try to fix that but i'm not sure what happens to all that traffic that's trying to turn around there but i think it's encouraging that that he wants to uh to at least take a a, a broad look at at traffic um and look for some um you know some little solutions here and there i don't think there's ever going to be one overarching solution we could get into you know, talking about affordable housing, which plays into this and, and other issues. But um, but if you can if you can make little fixes here and there, I, I'm I'm certainly one of those those commuters uh, three days a week right now used to be five days a week. And I, I think this year, look, I've got, I've just got kind of a Zen approach to it. And, I you know, I put on a, um, a podcast and, and drink a cup of coffee and, and it, it doesn't I don't let it get aggravated to me anymore, but there are a lot of people, Joe, I know you really hate the traffic and I um, do. And people just look, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. You're out, you're seeing a lot of accidents. There was an accident last week on, on County road 39 that it was near the, near the evening commute. And it, it just backed up traffic into Southampton village. And it, and it made a, a, what would normally be a 30 minute commute or an hour commute in, in the summer to some people were saying a three and a half hour commute trying to get home um, the other night. It's certainly a big problem. We call it the traffic apocalypse when it happens <laughs> and it happens fairly regularly. Beth, you've, you've been covering the region and seeing this problem for, for years. I, I'm not sure what the solution is. You're not going to build your way out of it. There's no place to put more roads. When you put more roads in, I, you know, they added a lane on County Road 39 about 10 years ago. It's completely filled, which is exactly what they said would happen. Um, what do we do here? I mean, there's the flashing lights, those kinds of things. Do you think it'll have an impact? Well, on the North Fork, we call it a traffic festival. <laughs> <laughs> Um, those lights on Flanders Road are relatively new, and they put them in at the request of a lot of residents who live on the side streets wanted to be able to make turns. And now even the people who live in Flanders are really upset about them and bad <coughs> ideas. So that needs to be revisited. Um, um, the as, as, Fork, just, to, just to interrupt you for one second, as a yeah. person who goes south on, on Flanders Road in the morning, I've certainly noticed that this past year, after the creation of those traffic lights, traffic on Flanders Road is just backed up for, you know, for for most of the road from from Riverhead to, to Hampton Bays. And it was never bumper to bumper um, stop and go traffic like that before. But it certainly is now. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Beth. No, that's OK. Yeah. And it's gridlocking Route 105, which is a highway. Um, just like people making a making a left hand turn, trying to beat the light and it's they can't get there because there's two more lights down the road blocking up traffic. It's uh, 
Yeah, you, yeah. you actually get gridlock by the strict definition of it. Um, and, and, you know, part of the, Vera, I think I, I have a theory that the, part, the reason traffic is so much worse now is Waze and GPS mm. and, and, and the, the apps that when there are backups on the main roads, they send people onto these back roads that locals always knew the shortcut back roads. And that was always sort of a source of friction to begin with. But now those have become ad hoc bypass roads for everybody. And now when you drive on the back roads during rush hour, they're just as congested as the main road. And every time somebody branches off of the main roads, You've got to come back in and where you come back in is there's a pinch point that's going to cause a backup in traffic on the main road again. And I, Jay Schneiderman's idea of using flashing lights will work if everybody stays on the main road. But I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, I think this this human tendency to try and flow around the traffic jam is, is and just make it worse in the meantime is, is part of the problem. Yeah. And so there's something else about the flashing lights that I want to point out. So they tried this in Watermill for the U.S. Open uh, in 2018. And it, uh, you know, it seemed to work. Jay was happy with it. Um, and then they said, hey, let's uh, let's let's expand it a little bit. Um, so um, they tried to keep it blinking for like a little bit longer or for more days or something. And the state DOT came and said, uh, you can't do that. So, and, and I talked to, to Jay, I spoke to him this week and he said they hadn't heard from the state DOT on this plan. Mm. So, I mean, traffic lights are there for a reason. There's lots of studies that go into why they should be there. So I'd be curious to see if uh, the state DOT comes in and says, uh, no. So, okay. So I and think it's time. I was just going to say there's a, there's an element and and I'm sure Jay is interested in solving the the traffic problems, but I think there's also an element of him deflecting um, from a, a proposal that is not being very well received in Hampton Bays to create um, this Montauk Highway bypass from from the intersection of Route 24 um, over to uh, to Good Ground Road um, area, and and I it, this is something that's been. It discussed in, in planning studies for, for, for decades now, this, this one, um, one block bypass that, that allegedly would, would help residents coming down uh, Flanders Road who you know, want to avoid some traffic on Montauk Highway to get south of the highway locations if they have residences there or whatever, or, um, you know, or, or people who want to, tourists who want to come in and get to the beach and avoid the traffic. But I think some of the complaints are that, that you're, you're only bypassing one one little block in Hampton Bays with this million dollar project. And I think a lot of people are curious as to if there are um, other untold reasons that um, there's speculation, other untold reasons of why this bypass is there. I, I, I don't think it would be restricted to people just heading south to their um, to, to their homes south of the highway. I think, as Joe said, people are always trying to avoid the traffic and you're just going to you're going to end up with gridlock on two roads instead of one road. And I don't know if that's helpful. There are a lot of existing ways around that intersection now. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I, don't, I think adding one adding one more is is not going to help and may make it worse. I live in Hampton Bays and I see that every every commuting day. So I know what I'm talking about. I, I think it's time to open up the, the box and start thinking about some creative ideas. I still remember Steve Kenny's big ditch 
proposal, <laughs> which was to essentially pull up the railroad tracks and create a create a, a two lane highway that would run um, below ground all the way to East Hampton. Uh, that was something he proposed. I, I one of one of the readers to the press actually sent a letter a couple of years ago and suggested gondolas along the railroad tracks that would carry large groups of people who would also have nice views of the water as they did that. I've always thought that was kind of an elegant idea. That's cool, uh, but they may as well just take the train. <laughs> it's true. Oh, no, well, we don't I want to do that. I would prefer to keep the train. <laughs> I would prefer we keep the train and add to it. So this is Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group, Bill Sutton of the Express News Group, my Beth Young uh, of the East End Beacon, Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, uh, Vera Chinise of Newsday, and I believe that was Cole, right, Bill? I, I, I think that was yeah, Cole. Yeah, that, that was, was Cole. He wanted to wait. Who was, was chiming in? Yeah, he's an he occasional. Gets, he gets jealous when I'm on the radio. He, he's he, a drop in guest well. from time to time. In these days of Zoom, this is what we learned to live with. Um, Steve, I want to ask you about a story you guys did this week uh, about a, a real crisis in the volunteer. Uh, emergency response community with fire departments and ambulances. Um, you did a story this week talking about the impact of that on some of the communities on the North Fork. Yeah, Brianne Letta, our newest hire, uh, young graduate out of Stony Brook, doing a great job, uh, a wonderful piece of enterprise. Um, it's the cover of the Suffolk Times and in the news review, basically looking at how every single fire department from Riverhead to Orient is in trouble with volunteers. They just can't get them. Um, Greenport seems to be in the worst position. There are situations on on weekends out there, Joe, where there are multiple calls and the same four or five people show up. Uh, there's just not enough people. Uh, there are not enough volunteers. There's a host of reasons for it. Um, we've talked about affordable housing on this show for a long time. Affordable housing is one of them. Young people can't afford to live live here. And then there is, which I didn't realize until I read Brianne's story, um, there is the training requirements to be a fireman, to be a first responder, um, have been heightened in recent years. So it takes so much time to get trained and people have jobs. Some people have two jobs. So you have a day job. So there's a quote in the story that if, if they have, if the alarm goes off at 830 in the morning, they're really hurting on having enough people to show up because people are off at work. Mm. Um, and these are all volunteer departments. So every department now has signs out front saying volunteers needed. And it's going to be a very, very difficult problem to solve. Beth, this is a problem on the South Fork too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a bigger problem for, for EMS than for fire because EMS makes up a lot of the calls. Um, I'm a volunteer with Cachagos, just certified as an EMT, and we don't really, um, there, there are a lot of departments that are going to paid EMS staff because basically the volunteer departments, you have a pager at home, when it goes off, if you can respond, you respond. Uh, there aren't duty shifts in a lot of the local volunteer departments and um, uh, Riverhead has shifts and that's how they manage to keep their department mostly volunteer, but they also have paid people on staff. But you need, uh, the fire requirements are intense. The EMT, e the EMS requirements are much more intense. Um, and what they're really hurting for everywhere is EMTs. I mean, uh, there, are, yeah. there are a lot of paid staff in the little departments um, on the South Fork. 
Amagansett has paid people, I believe, for Champton does as well. Um, and we may need to look into going to all paid EMS in the not too distant future because people, when people have a health crisis, especially people come here from the city, they expect to have um, uh, really good care. Yeah, Vera, I'm wondering, working for Newsday, you might have a little broader view. Is this a problem throughout Suffolk County, throughout um, the island? It, you know, where, where do the paid departments and the paid ambulance really begin on the island? Do, do they have those a little bit further to the west? I, you know, I can't really answer that question. Um, you know, I'm so focused on the East End, but it's it's certainly yeah. more acute on the East End than than anywhere else. You know, just because of the seasonal nature and an aging population, it's certainly it's certainly worse out here. It's it's a deeper problem here, and the and the the seasonal nature of living out here, um, at least until the last year or two, which things have changed a little bit uh, in that regard. But I think that plays into it too. A lot of the, there's a lot of houses that that don't have people here full time and they're not that the, they're not people who would volunteer for the fire department or the ambulance company. And Steve, I've, I've been in journalism for 30 years and I've always lived in communities that had volunteer fire departments and for the most part, volunteer ambulance services too. And I've always seen this problem that I remember back in rural Pennsylvania, the local ambulance company, Chuck Leach, who was a local insurance agent, ran about 70 or 80 percent of all of the ambulance calls in, in that town. Um, and it just was an you know unpaid position. It was really unfair. That little rural town of 1,100 people ended up going to a paid ambulance service through the, the local hospital. Is that something we're going to have to start talking about locally? I don't know how they're going to miss this conversation. I mean, I think everyone talks about it. Uh, of course, it then brings up the whole tax question. People's taxes are already quite high. How, how are we going to do this? But the fact that there are volunteers out there willing to do, go to five or six calls on a weekend just shows you what kind of unselfish people we have out here. We're so fortunate to have these volunteers and first responders. As Beth points out, the EMS people in particular, um, a friend of mine was just taken to the ambulance from city at, at MD here in Kutchell the other day for a heart issue. They were there in a couple of minutes. Um, they got him to the hospital, probably saved his life. But at some point, Joe, um, if this continues and they just can't get enough people, particularly during daylight when people are working, maybe at night it's a different story. Um, they're going to have to start this, this, this issue up and fire departments are going to have to begin looking for people who they can put on the payroll. And it's gonna, it's gonna be a game changer. There's no doubt about it. Stony Brook and Northwell do have first responder vehicles. Uh, I, I believe they have them on the South Fork as well. They have yes, two during the gate well. on, on the North Fork um, and one at night. Um, but if they're at one call and they're, they've begun patient care, they can't just leave that patient and go to another call in another town. And so if, they're, if you're covering, you know, Manitou, Kachog, and Southold, and then you have another truck covering Greenport and Orient, you might be able to get a first responder car from Orient, but they need to stay out there in case there's a call out there. So, it, you know, two people to cover the entire North Fork is intense. One of the other things that Brianne points out in her story, which is kind of interesting, is what used to be rare, meaning, let's say there's a, an emergency situation in Greenport where they would handle it themselves. Right. Now there's an immediate hit hookup to, let's say, Southold to let them know we're going to need your help as backup because they just don't have enough people to respond. Yeah. The, um, 
the uh, advanced life support training, it's like more than a thousand hours. And to do that for a, uh, to do that as a volunteer is an enormous time commitment. Wow. And we need, and we need ALS people. We need. Yeah. And you're in that community, Beth. Is, I assume this is a, a topic of regular conversation. It, does it, does it affect morale? I mean, the people who are doing the volunteering, um, it's got to get frustrating when, when you feel, I mean, I think they're amazing. And, and I think we throw the word heroes around a lot, but I think people they who are, are willing to, willing who, people who are willing to volunteer in fire departments and ambulance companies are local heroes in, in the most basic sense. But I have to wonder, Beth, you're, you're, you're around this community. It's got to start to affect morale when, when everybody is stretched so thin because there aren't enough volunteers. I feel like the morale in Kutchog, we're we're lucky, is pretty high. We're always looking for people, but there's a lot of teamwork and there's a lot of good leadership. Um, I think I was in the Flanders Fire Department before then, and they're a very small department. And one of the biggest problems with recruiting people out there is everybody works out in the Hamptons. So during the day, they're two hours away. And stuck in traffic. Yeah, and they're stuck in traffic. <laughs> so it's funny, like it's it's a, it's a traffic problem for you to get volunteers out on the South Fork, but to get people home to volunteer in their own community when they're stuck on the South in the South Fork working, that doesn't work either. So, um, well, that's a great point. It's how it all connects yeah. together. I mean, the, the yeah. traffic issue becomes uh, an affordable housing issue. It becomes an emergency services issue. It's just very uh, <laughs> true. It's all intertwined um, yeah. in a way that that makes it very difficult to address. Actually, yeah. Bill, did you it's want to be a long-standing problem, Joe? And it, it's <laughs> it, it will have they're going to have to go to paid services at some point. Well, there's we were, there's we half me- there's half measures with that too, and I'm thinking I think it was so West Hampton Beach, um, you know, hired first responders during the day, but then the volunteers cover at night. And I'm not sure if that's still the case, but but it was at one time. And I'm wondering if if that's how you you start to ease into um, to ease into that. And I think Flanders at one time was talking about um, trying to trying to bill patients. And there were a lot of um, to, to generate revenue. And there were a lot of issues with that. And I don't know. Go ahead. That's billing insurance companies. Not right. Yeah. They have to provide okay. care, but they're, but actually this is why you see some standalone ambulance agencies. I believe West Hampton is standalone and Riverhead and Flanders. They do such a high volume of calls. If they're attached to a fire department, they can't, ins- they can't bill insurance companies. Ah. They're a standalone agency. They can, I don't understand why. Yeah. It seems like those are some issues that need to be addressed to, to, the other to thing, to- Joe in Greenport. It's really interesting. Yeah. Once they built Peconic Landing, which now mm-hmm. has hundreds of residents, it completely changed the response dynamic in that in that little hamlet. Well, that's a great point. That's a that's a whole different situation. And they knew and, it at the time. And, they knew it when they approved it. It was going to have a, a huge effect on the fire department in the hospital. I, I think that's they, an issue in Southampton too, with with the uh, with the home there. That was the point I was going to make. Is is yeah. anytime there's a big development like that proposed, there's talk about how much it will stress the emergency services as well. So, uh, ongoing issue that we'll keep an eye on. Uh, it's behind the headlines. WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We are here with Bill, uh, with Beth Young, uh, Steve Wick, and Vera Chinise. Vera, I want to talk about a story you did this week. Uh, for years, we've talked about how mental health services 
on the East End in Suffolk County in general, but particularly on the East End, have been subpar. And it's it's led a lot a lot of people uh, to talk about the need to to improve things. You, you wrote a story this week that things seem to be improving a little bit. Yeah. So there there have been um, a few improvements that have been tied to the pandemic. I mean. This is, you know, these problems are in no way solved, but there's been steps taken to strengthen the web of providers. Um, One thing, there's always been a lack of uh, psychiatry services, particularly on the East End. So Stony Brook has um, they have five um, residents that will be in rotation across the Twin Forks. So that, you know, that's one thing that will help. Um, and everybody I spoke to seemed to really stress how telehealth can really help um, a region like the East End, which is uh, transit challenged. Um, you know, say you have a, a kid who's, you know, a teenager, a student who can't get a ride to their therapist, you know, that's that's something that could help. Um, for anybody who needs to do a psychiatric intake, I guess previously they would have to be transported to Stony Brook. Um, now they could do it at Southampton Hospital and do it virtually um, with the staff in Stony Brook. So that's, you know, that's a huge ride for somebody who's in crisis. Um, you know, it eliminates you know, having to travel from Southampton to Stony Brook. So, you know, there, there are a few things that have been happening to improve things out here. So, so necessity uh, breeds invention. I was just going to yes, say, yeah. you know, during during the pandemic, everybody really got used to, you know, Zoom calls and Zoom meetings and Zoom radio shows, um, you know, and, and and Zoom and Zoom healthcare and you know virtual healthcare. And and I think certainly, and I you know I keep I, I dislike using the silver lining, um, um, you know, statement, but but maybe this is one you know one advantage that you know that we we came through with yeah um, and it's not going to go away you know this right. telehealth is going to stay um after the pandemic subsides uh, and one other thing is that you know if somebody you know people of means who split their time between manhattan and the east end they were hunkered down on the east end well hey their therapist was also hunkered down on the east end so mm. um the family service league has also uh expanded its dash center which i don't know if you guys are familiar with that um, it's in Hopog. Um, it's a crisis center for yeah. uh, psychi- psychiatric emergencies. Right. And they have the satellite in, in Riverhead now, which I mean, uh, the uh, you know, yeah, as Vera was saying, going to going to the main campus of Stony Brook for psychiatric emergency is a traumatic experience in and of itself for the patient. So going into going to a place that's um, safer and more just closer to home and more closer to home and more and and not an inpatient facility, just, I mean, some people just need medication stabilization, which you can't really do just if, if you aren't already in a, a, under the care of a psychiatrist, which is different than a uh, social worker. I have a a friend who's a therapist and she talks about the fact that um, so much of her sessions now are being done virtually and that's been better uh, for the clients, it's it's easier for them. It's and and so she has more regular appointments because it's not such a hassle to try and get to the office yeah. to see face to face. So um, it's one of those things. Bill, you made the point I was going to make, which was the the pandemic sort of changed our attitudes about remote uh, doing things remotely, and and this might be one of those times where it really pays off. It's it's uh, addressing a real shortcoming. Yeah. 
One one thing I I just want to add to that. Um, So for many, you know, if you're if you're a therapist, um, it can be hard to make a living, uh, you know, dealing with insurance companies. Um, So it's actually it's hard to to afford the rent on an office space out here and to afford housing out here as a therapist, you know, so if you're not a psychiatrist, if you're, you know, a social worker, counselor, uh, it's very hard to just make it out here. Um, So that's something that adds to the problem as well. And and if more people, if more people can make it, then you have a greater web of of help available and that starts to improve the the services. No question. Beth, we have a couple of minutes left. We want to talk about uh, a new shellfishing project uh, in uh, Tiana Bay right here uh, near me in Hampton Bays, right? Yeah. Um, So Southampton town, um, and East Hampton Town are, are, have uh, agreed to use up to 20% of their CPF money for water quality projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so the Tiana Bayside facility has been this community shellfish um, uh, garden. Uh, it was kind of spearheaded by Councilman John Bouvier. Um, and uh, they're growing scallops over there now um, and looking to create scallop habitat. Um, and these Peconic Bay scallops had two really horrible years the last couple of years. Um, and uh, due to a, a variety of reasons. So just having, having people growing them and trying to figure out how to make it work in the future um, as, a, as a community engagement project and as a, uh, a citizen science project is a really cool thing. It's been a very tough stretch of time to be a young scallop wanting to grow up in the world, right? <laughs> well, they uh, only the last few years. <laughs> the last couple of years have just yeah. been devastating to the scallop population out here. Um, and I, I've said this before, the aquaculture efforts, what's fascinating to me about that is they actually leave the environment cleaner than, than when you start, that, that um, the scallops and oysters, and they, they, they filter the water. Uh, so when you create these large farms, you're, you're not only growing shellfish and helping an industry that really can use the help, uh, and maybe bolstering the, the local populations of that shellfish, you're actually helping the environment when you're doing it. That's so rare that that a project can do all that at once. And, and, and oysters are a miracle crop as far as that goes. Scallops don't really take to captivity well, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, there's, it's a, there's you know, for, for the baymen who rely on on scalloping um, every year, it's it's been a huge, um, it's been a huge issue the last couple of years. So maybe... Uh, maybe this this farm can give people some insight into what's been going on, and and maybe you could just help the uh, the general scallop population just by by studying these scallops. Absolutely. And Beth, the, you know the the problems that in that have that have affected those populations, as you said, are really varied. Right? It's not just one problem. It's been over the last couple of years. It's been predation by other species. It's been uh, viruses or some other kinds of illness that's affecting uh, scallops. It's just been a variety of things. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you ch- pull the lens back a little bit, they're, they're very climate related, warming waters and the cow nose ray moving north. Um, the parasite, I don't know if there's a climate connection there. Um, but um, I was just up in Maine and uh, everybody in Maine was uh, moaning and groaning that the lobsters are moving to Canada because the waters there are too warm. And we thought they were just leaving here and going to Maine. So uh, it's a global problem. 
these are all evidence of climate change. It's just coming coming out in different ways, but uh, none of it good. I think you know the original problems were the brown tides and and the the various algae problems in the bays. Uh, that's lessened a little bit, uh, and certainly development and pollution has a lot to do with with creating those problems too. But I think you're right. Climate change. This is one of the ways climate change is is showing its face locally, right? I, yeah. How do we solve that at a local level? I... Well, one way is to create more aquaculture to try and bolster the population with intervention. Um, so I think it probably all ties together that way, right? Is there a traffic is there a traffic connection in some way to this? I feel like I feel like we need to bring it all full circle you bring here in those some way. Bugs down to the Hamptons from I don't know, where are they growing them in Southold? At affordable housing. Maybe they'll start renting out cages as affordable housing at some point. Uh, hey. It's a it's a water. Hey, you're living on the water. In the water, actually. <laughs> some some people at uh, the Parish Art Museum will help set up a floating. Uh, there you go. A floating geodesic dome we can all live in. We need creative ideas. Gondolas are, you know, the gondola ideas and growing on trees. We have to come up with some innovative <laughs> new ideas, no question. I think we're out of time for this week. We covered a lot of ground. There's a lot going on this summer on the East End, and it's been a lot of fun just sort of parsing through, uh, going behind the headlines with you guys, as it is all the time. Uh, I want to thank Beth Young of the East End Beacon. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Thank you, Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group. Thank you, guys, everyone. And Vera Chinise from Newsday. Always a pleasure, Vera. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Bill, thank you for being the best co-host in the business. Oh, no, you are. (laughs) (laughs) This is Joe Shaw from the the Express News Group. And uh, we will be back next week with Behind the Headlines. Thank you all uh, for joining us. And thank you guys very much. Thank you.